Hello there, I'm Graham Gardner and you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 6 from the BSD, the British Society of Dowsers. In previous podcasts, we've focused mainly on the very practical side of dowsing, namely dowsing for underground water supplies, but this is only one aspect of dowsing. In this episode, we're not so much going to be dipping a toe into the water, more jumping into the deep end of the earth energy scene with our interview with master dowser Billy Gone. But first we have to do a little bit of housekeeping. Now, you will have heard me mention at the end of the last episode that I thought we were having problems with the podcast email address. Well, this is not in fact the case. It's been working perfectly all along. It's just that nobody's been sending us any emails. Um, However, I did have one recently from a Mac user who was reporting problems downloading the podcast uh, when he subscribed from the iTunes store. And I checked this out, and it seems to be fine on PCs, but Macs apparently have a problem with spaces in the file names, and this is what the uh, the trouble was. So I've uh, updated all the feeds, and everything's working fine now, so if you are a Mac user and have been having trouble with the uh, iTunes sub- subscription, it's all working now. So hope that makes you all happy, and thanks very much to Nathan for pointing that out. Now it's February, and the UK has been shivering under the worst snowfalls in decades, but with spring surely just around the corner now, it's time to be polishing up the dowsing rods in readiness for summer. And there's a whole lot of stuff happening in the BSD events calendar. Here's a roundup of some of the forthcoming events. Uh, all these events are open to non-members too, although there will be a small surcharge to pay, uh, but if you're not sure about becoming a member of the BSD and want to see what it's all about, attending one of these events is definitely the way forward. Anyway, coming up on 28th of February, the Health Special Interest Group are holding their spring meeting in Burstobble, and uh, speakers include Sean O'Geary, who will be body-dowsing the triune process. This is a unique opportunity to have an overview of the basis of this cutting-edge therapy. And then there's Bogdan Jochim, who's talking about energy pendulums, an introduction to the theory and application of energy pendulums in colour therapy, balancing of subtle energy fields and other beneficial uses. It includes demonstrations of the Isis pendulum and the French universal pendulum. And then Faye Palmer is talking about dimensions of health, an illustration of the impact on our health of problems with the electromagnetic field, together with the subtle energy bodies of the aura and chakra system. Now, I don't have any details for the archaeology special interest group, so I'm not sure what they're up to, but you can find more details uh, on the BSD website, of course. And the water special interest group utilities section, on April the 18th, uh, they're having a visit to a waterworks near Nottingham, led by David Dixon. And finally, on March the 28th and 29th, the Earth Energies Group Spring Meeting takes place at Bury St Edmunds, featuring our favourite physicist Jim Lyons talking about quantum entanglement. Jim and Wendy Doyle are talking about some of their work clearing ancient sites and working with Devic entities, and your humble presenter will be sharing some of his geomantic paradigms that help us connect with the landscape. And the final speaker is none other than the subject of our interview today, Billy Gorn, who will talk about the design and construction of stone circles and chambered mounds, which by a staggering coincidence is also the subject of today's interview. How neat a link is that? 
Uh, Billy is well known to most BSD members, but for the benefit of the rest of our listeners, let me just explain that Billy was the founder of the Earth Energy's Special Interest Group and was chair for eight years. He has developed a completely deviceless method of dowsing using his eyes, which not only allows a great deal of freedom, it also gives him the ability to douse three-dimensionally. For almost a hundred years, dowsers have been demonstrating that spending long periods of time over underground water flows, for instance having your bed positioned over one, can be detrimental to health, a condition known as geopathic stress. One of the ways dowsers neutralise this is often through some form of earth acupuncture using steel rods or the correct placement of a standing stone. Many ancient standing stones are situated over a crossing point of two water lines, and more complex flows are found in larger megalithic structures. It is thought that they may have been deliberately sited there to control the detrimental energies. Well, Billy has done a lot of research into this area, and he shares some of his findings with us, as you'll hear in a bit. Billy also uses a technique from kinesiology called muscle testing to determine if a given point has a weakening effect on humans. We'll get into the subject more in later podcasts, but Billy gives us a good introduction to the subject of geopathic stress, and he has his own special way of fixing it. Here's how he goes about it. So Billy, I'm just wondering, uh, why did you decide to build a stone circle in your back garden here? Well, for many years I had uh, been interested in and looked at stone circles all over the country, in uh, Ireland and Scotland and England and Wales and even uh, abroad. And when I doused around them uh, carefully, I found that there seemed to be a fairly close correlation between the position that the stones were in and deep underground water flows or systems that were there. And again, through uh, muscle testing and uh, other things, uh, dowsing generally, and this is what many other dowsers have observed too, that it would appear that some kind of detrimental radiation rises vertically from the edge lines of underground water. But what I found was through experimentation that when one placed a stone onto the edge line, uh, close to where uh, the person was standing and which we were doing the muscle testing, and the muscle then became strong. In other words, the stone was earthing the detrimental radiation and stopping it from rising out of the ground. And this is what I felt was happening actually at uh, ancient stone circles where they were complete. And I found that certainly stone circles where they were complete, there was very little detrimental radiation to be found in and around them. And so I put this theory to test and to date now I've built three stone circles, uh, uh, 17 stones and 19 stones, I just can't remember the number in the third one, but in around that same number of stones, I put up numerous single standing stones. There's a different sort of relationship to the single standing stone in underground water. than what there is with regards to stone circles but we'll stick to stone circles at this moment in time so where I was building uh, the house that I'm now sitting in uh, I had observed prior to that that there was this place 
adjacent to the house where there were uh, quite a number of large underground flows crossing. And another feature at ancient sites too that I found was that there were quite a number of large energy lines crossing as well. And this location not far from the house had all these uh, same qualities. Now is this something special about this location or is this quite a common occurrence? It is common to the degree that yes, uh, you could get uh, positions similar to this. Uh, I wouldn't like to say how far apart, but you certainly wouldn't have to go many miles to get them. But uh, to, uh, the main thing is to get a location where there is quite a large quantity or volume of underground water. Because it would appear also that the larger the volume of underground water, coupled with the size of stones you put there and the larger the stones you put, the greater area of influence that it has around it. So, uh, yes and no to your question there. If you want a choice spot, you may have to go several miles, or they may be several miles apart, but you could get more minor spots uh, where you may find them every half mile to a mile apart. So did this have any bearing on your decision to build the house here or uh, was it something you found out after you'd made that decision? Well where the house is situated uh, also is fairly unique in that there are uh, quite a number of very large beneficial energy lines crossing through the house uh, and uh, I felt that that would be a good place to do it. Some of these are the lines that do cross through the circle as well, but uh, no, the, the choice of putting those here was uh, for a slightly different reason. What I also found interesting about the circle is that the, uh, the slightly egg-shaped geometry of it was uh, defined by where you found the underground streams. Uh, is that something you find at other stone circles? Yes, indeed. Uh, most stone, ancient stone circles are not perfectly circular and uh, the work that was done by Alexander Tom and others illustrates that very accurately and they can be classified as either flattened circles or elliptical circles or egg-shaped circles and uh, this one that I constructed here would probably fall into the egg shape and uh, the other thing that I did do is that before I put the stones in I did hammer fencing posts in very accurately at the intersection points and when I measured around that, the perimeter of that, and also measured then the uh, the distance from a centre point to those uh, positions and took the average of the axis and uh, multiplied that by 1.618, uh, I found that that was very very close to the perimeter distance and that means that the circle as such conforms to the golden ratio. Mm -hmm. The golden proportion. Golden yeah. proportions yeah. and that is something I've found with regards to a lot of ancient circles as well. Yeah. That they do conform fairly accurately to the, the, the golden proportions. So um, you th the circle has harmonised the energies in quite a large area? It has indeed, yes. When I put the circle there, uh, just if I could go back a little bit before that, I had placed a single standing stone which was there for a couple of three years, and that had cleared the determinal energy around it for a distance of a few miles. 
when I built the stone circle, the area of influence was probably doubled from what it was with a single standing stone. But that has since been increased greatly by the incorporation of what you'd call a slightly miniature chambered grave style of structure which was built about 100 yards or more away from the stone circle. And the imprint for this was there through natural conditions or forces in the form of a triple spiral. And uh, this energetic triple spiral is something that I had found also at chamber graves like Newgrange and so on. In fact, any of the chamber graves where there were three chambers in it uh, in the form of crucifix or uh, shamrock type of uh, figuration. And uh, I built the chambered grave, if you want to call it a grave because there's no burial in it, around that and then I placed a piece of white quartz in the passageway, what would, would one would call the light box area, if one were to refer to new grains. And I found then that that had the effect of, as it were, amalgamating and joining together the, the energetic forces of the mound and the stone circle, and seemed also to connect in with other ancient structures in the district uh, to get rid of or to earth the developmental energies for uh, in a westerly direction probably about 30 miles from it in the easterly direction probably about 20 miles mm. and the same in the north and south direction again sort of an egg shaped uh, area around it that uh, Determinal energy, which which would not normally rise from underground water or from other sources, has been earthed. So it has had a remarkable impact on the energetic environment for a long distance around it. Um, and how do you see uh, the interaction between the the chambered cairn and the, and the circle? They seem to be quite um, different sort of energies, and yet there does seem to be uh, some sort of vibrational interface going on between them. There is now, but uh, I'm fairly new to this too. I mean, uh, they're putting the quartz in uh, to the passageway of the same recurrence, only something they did about six months ago. So I'm still learning from that, and I wouldn't like just to give any firm answer or forever reply to it. There is one of the major flows of underground water which pass through the circle, does pass through beneath the chambered cairn as well. So I think that it is essential that uh, these things be linked by underground water systems. And I know that some of the underground water that flows beneath the stone circle that I built also passes beneath other ancient structures such as chamber graves and single standing stones and so on that are in the surrounding district. So it could very well be that it is the web of underground water systems uh, through which this interaction takes place. Uh, but it needs a lot more investigation into that and uh, I'm only putting a forward suggestion at the moment and maybe I can follow that through or others can follow that through and see what uh, their views are on it. 
Well, uh, we look forward to further research of this uh, very interesting area. So, Billy, thanks very much for talking to us. Not at all. Well, since that interview was recorded, Billy has been doing more work on his theories, and as I mentioned at the start, he'll be talking more about them at the Earth Energies Group Spring Meeting on 28th and 29th of March. I hope you enjoyed that introduction to Earth Energy Dowsing. Needless to say, it's a very complex subject, and we can't hope to cover it all in one podcast, so we'll be coming back to this area in the future. Coming up next, a short introductory lesson with a number one student, Pam, demonstrating how to find an energy lay. Now, these are wide, straight flows of lay energy running just on or above the surface, and they show up as fairly wide bands about 2 to 3 metres wide. They're not quite the same thing as a ley line, although they do coincide sometimes, and they're fairly easy for beginners to find. So if you want to join in with this lesson, make sure you are prepared with your dowsing tools and ready to douse. Go through your pre-flight questions, and then ask yourself, is there an energy lay within 25 metres of where I'm standing? When you get a yes response to this, you're ready to continue with the lesson. Pause the podcast now if you need to, until you're ready. Anyway, let's get our L-rods out and do some L-rod dowsing. So I'm looking for an energy lay. Now, unlike water, which is very kind of yin and, and draining, energy lays tend to flow just on or just beneath the surface. This is what you call a ley line, basically. Right. Uh, and it's a straight flow of very sort of yang, very sort of masculine, energising type energy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, water is kind of like a green tea, if you like, whereas energy lays are like espresso, coffee. <laughs> yeah, if you want to think of it that way. So I think there's one along here. Let me just go and see. So this time I'm looking for an energy lay. I sort of tend to visualise a sort of band of light on the surface. And I've also asked my rods to go out when I find an energy lay instead of crossing. So that I know. Okay, here we go. Here's one. There we are. There's one there. Okay, so So let's see how Palm's doing on this. I just crossed. Good. Well, that's the near side edge you've just found there. Okay. You just found that first instead of the centre. Okay. Good. Because before that, like one, the left moved a little bit, then the right, then came back, but then as I got closer, they definitely crossed together right here. Yeah. Okay. Well, keep on, see if you get another couple of crossings. Hmm? Like that. Okay. Yeah, there's one there. That's the centre of it. Right, and that's the other edge of it. Right. So you see how wide that is? I mean, that's at least twice the width of what we found as a water line. Right. Yeah. Ah, So that's a good characteristic. It's about six paces or something? Yeah, it's about six paces. Maybe, I don't know, three metres or so? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Another trick you can do is try just squatting down on an energy lay. And you often find that just above ground level, your hand will feel a bit warmer. Warm? Yeah. You can sort of feel it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, the other thing that L-rods are good for, as opposed to a pendulum, is for showing the direction of things. So if I want to know which direction is the energy flow in this, I can just ask that question. So, you know, show me the direction of the flow of this energy lay. And as I get to it, you see my rods are going to the left. Both rods are pointing to the left. 
instinct is mine moved first to the left. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you often pick up on that. Okay. You will find there are different bands in, in energy lays that you can you can work with. Uh-huh. You know, there are they are sort of subdivided. But generally there's always an overall flow. In fact you can do this with one rod, you don't really need two. Yeah, so which way is the flow going? Yeah, it's pointing Definitely to the left. Right. It's pointing to the left again. Same thing applies with water as well. You, know, you can do the same with a water line to find the direction of flow, yeah. or the flow of water in a pipe, obviously. Yeah. So, let's have a shot at that. Okay. And oh. your rod's going to the left as well. Using yeah. one at a time, left, then yeah. right, but both yeah. going to the left. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's not uncommon, is to find one going after the other. But uh-huh. you know, but the more you do it, the quicker that will come. Together. Yeah. Okay. That's why I, I often just use one these days, you know, I just use the one rod. So. Uh, now this is actually leading on to what's called remote dowsing as well, because once you've learned this directional thing, uh-huh. you can stand at the edge of a field, say, with your rod and ask it to point to where the lay is or where the water is, ah, which right. is what they call remote dowsing. So you're not actually on the spot, you're slightly okay. removed from the spot. Okay. That's different from map dowsing, which is when you're completely remote from the which spot. Which is what I thought you meant by remote dowsing, yeah. but you can many do it people, on the edge of a field or something. Many right? people often uh, get the two confused. Right. And like I could say, holding it at one rod in front of me, I can also say which direction is north. And if you're doing this, just turn round with the rod held out in front of you and you'll find it'll usually stick. That's brilliant. It sticks. Yeah. I don't know if that's right. Let me just check with the compass. That was not bad, actually. But that's really, you know, so you would never really lose You'd your You'd never bearings. really get lost. That's another benefit I yeah. never thought about. Or where's the nearest pub, you know, that's <laughs> another good one. <laughs> Coffee shop in my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was out in, uh, in Brittany recently, actually, we, uh, we found a lot of these sites in the forest using a combination of this sort of dowsing. Really? In combination with GPS. <laughs> oh, as, as a total backup. Because <laughs> often the GPS wasn't too accurate or it you know, got a bit confused, so we'd get the dowsing rods out. And between the two of them, we never got lost. Really? <laughs> it was very handy. I think, I think it's just that like, it's trusting it and, and practicing it and maybe just getting used to it because I'm much more tentative than you but it, it still yeah. works just yeah. like say trusting it yeah you just yeah. got to trust with it and it's just uh, experience and practice uh-huh. you, know, you just get uh, more used to it okay good thanks something you just kind of mentioned in passing Graham and I, I wasn't quite sure about deviceless what deviceless dowsing ah okay like, right any rods? deviceless dowsing is really uh, the ultimate aim of, of any dowser uh-huh. um, it's very handy to be able to just douse at the drop of a hat, uh, and you might not always have your dowsing tools with you, like your pendulum. Although I always carry a pendulum with me these days, but there will be uh, occasions, like say when you're driving, where you can't really okay. get your pendulum into play. Right. So it's just a kind of progression from that when you think that your dowsing tool is moving as a response to a muscular reaction. It's just a question of isolating the muscles involved and learning to amplify that so you don't need the tool. There's various little shortcuts we can use. For instance, uh, rubbing your thumb and first finger together. Because if your fingers were wet? Because if your fingers were wet. In fact, yeah, just oh. I usually just lick my fingers and rub it together uh-huh. and ask your question. And then you find that your yes response will be you get the fingers sticking. Ah, right. Okay. Or you can make circles out of your thumb and fingers and link them together like a chain. This, seen, this is I've quite popular that. in yeah. kinesiology, this I've one. Seen that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then I think if they stick together, it's the yes. If they come apart, it's the no. Right. Uh, okay. So I find the rubbing the thumb and finger together is quite handy when you're driving. 
you know, I have actually successfully found places I don't know just by asking, you know, should I turn left at the next junction? But it's handy <laughs> to have kind of really practical things, not that you're Absolutely. It, Absolutely. It kind of builds, I find that builds my confidence. Yeah. And you can do rod type dowsing with your forearms if you just hold your arms out without the rods and just if your arms are relaxed enough just treat them like a pair of rods and they'll swing in and out. Right, okay. But uh, I mean there are people like Billy Gone from Northern Ireland who is a master deviceless dowser. He just uses his eyes. He worked up from using his, uh, he got his wrist muscles going uh, when he stopped using rods. And then he gradually worked it up to his shoulder. So for a year or so he was going around with his like neck twitching whenever he found anything. Okay. Um, and then he got it sort of refined to such an extent uh, that it's, it's just his eyeballs that twitch. So he can literally just cast his eyes across the horizon what, from left to right. Yeah, and his eyes will sort of twitch or stop. He'll just sort of fix on a point right. when he's getting the response. And he can feel that then? He can feel that. Yeah. And that's great because you know, I mean, he can doze absolutely anywhere. So he can tell you that you know the the stream that you're standing on has its source in these mountains that are 20 miles away on the horizon. Really? He can doze three dimensionally just by sort of looking down through the through the ground, you know, especially if it's the side of a hill or something. But in each of these cases, like a physical link, though, either using your forearms or yeah. or, or in his eyes. Yeah. So there's always this bridging link, this bridging yeah. mechanism between the physical and your subconscious. It's exactly the same thing. It's just, okay. you know, you learn to do it without the tools. Right. There's lots of uh, other fancier tools we could use. You know, I mean, these L rods are homemade and quite cheap, but you can get very expensive ones that you'll pay 25, 30 quid for. Uh-huh. You get very expensive crystal pendulums, and there's, there's other much more high-tech devices. But, you know, they're all doing the same job. So don't think you have to go out and buy the, the rock crystal quartz-cut pendulum uh-huh. to be a good dowser. You know, a piece of um, nut on a, on a thread will do uh-huh. just as well. I mean, by all means, buy the tools because they look nice uh-huh. and they give you pleasure, but uh-huh. don't think you need you need a crystal pendulum to be a dowser. Can I ask something as well, though? People, if you go, did say somebody goes, no, I, I, would, I want to buy a crystal one for myself. Mm-hmm. The thing about, I've heard people talk about cleansing it, you're supposed to, like, what, like, wash it under water? Or, or yeah. do you, if you buy something from a shop? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people who do more work with crystals, uh-huh. you know, do actively program the crystal for specific things so you can sort of mentally do that with the pendulum if you want and you could have a whole range of different crystal pendulums you, know, you just have to be aware it's, this is just a system that you're imposing on it you know, right. it's just a mental classification if you like if, if you think your crystal needs cleansed after a month then fine yeah. I was thinking even when you first buy it if you bought it in a shop yeah, yeah a lot of people do yeah I'm, I'm a bit conflicted about crystals these days because mm-hmm. you hear so many tales about you know uh, Brazilian uh, you know ten year old kids having to go through the rubble of a blasted mountain to harvest yeah. them and things you know. Yeah, that, that, yeah you want to be as ethical as possible. Yeah. yeah. Also you know I go through a lot of pendulums. Mm-hmm. That's why I just have this little brass one there because it's quite uh, cheap and doesn't smash. You know you drop a crystal one, that's it, forget it. You know. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you're out in, in the field, if you drop it in long grass, forget it. You know, I've just oh, lost too many pendulums to, to bother with an expensive one. It's not that they've come to their end of their life and no, lost them. No, just somewhere. actually dropped right. them and lost them, okay. yeah. So it happens quite a lot. Thanks to Pam there for being a very willing student. If you're interested in taking your training further, we have a number of BSD courses coming up. Uh, Maggie Ledbetter is doing a health dowsing for health and well-being course on the 28th and 29th of March near Stourbridge. And 14th and 15th of March, we have former President Patrick McManaway is teaching Environmental Healing 1, Understanding Geopathic Stress, at Breeden near Tewkesbury. This is part of our brand new Earth Energies curriculum. 
On the 28th and 29th of March, Paul Craddock is tutoring Environmental Healing Foundation, Earth Energies and the Spirit of Place, and that's being held at Avebury, which is a fantastic location for it. Eleanor Burke is doing a foundation course on the 4th and 5th of April near Beedale, and Adrian Ingleton Weber is doing a foundation course on the 18th and 19th of April at Compton Hall. There's also a number of other BSD-approved courses run by the registered tutors, including a BSD-approved foundation course at Mugduck near Glasgow on the 14th and 15th of March, being tutored by my good self. For full details on these and other courses, see the website under What's On. Now in other news, the new improved online BSD shop is now up and running. There's still some work needed to get the stock listings fully up to date, but it's looking pretty good so far. We now have all our financial transactions available in one place for online payment, including subscriptions, membership and register renewals, and payment for events and courses. And for the first time, we can handle online payments for international customers. That's it for today. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Malvern, England. For more details about dowsing and the Society's activities, please see the website at britishdowsers.org. You can also register and leave messages on our forum at britishdowsers.org slash forum. There is a special podcast section in there for all your questions relating to the show. Or you can email us directly on podcast at britishdowsers.org, and it is definitely working. So send us an email, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. And if you're subscribing with iTunes, why not give us a review? Let's see if we can get the podcast into the new and featured section on the iTunes store. Thanks very much to Hilary Brooks who does our music. And that's it. Be sure to join us next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.